0: Welcome to another episode of the Tai Chi Notebook I'm your host Graham Barlow and this is the podcast where I get to chat to the people I find most inspiring in the world of martial arts This episode I'm talking to the man the legend that is Stefan Kesting Stefan has taught thousands of people martial arts through his famous website grapplearts.com which back in the day was one of the first sites to put out quality Brazilian Jiu Jitsu instructional material and is still putting out top-notch instructionals today Stefan is a fireman he has competed in martial arts and he has trekked across the Canadian wilds with a canoe. Recently, he's undergone a full hip replacement and documented his recovery. And he's about to return to training again. So he's one tough old dude. Stefan also hosts his own podcast, The Strenuous Life Podcast, which I'd recommend you listen to because it's always super interesting, especially his episodes on debunking conspiracy theories. But anyway, let's get on with it. Here he is, Stefan Kesting. Hello,
1: Stefan Kesting. How are you? Oh, very well, Graham. Thank you so much for making making time. I guess it's your evening and my morning.
0: Yeah, so I looked up Canada to find out what time it was for you, and then I realized that there were about eight different time zones in yeah. Canada.
1: <laughs> so I, I've no idea which bit you were in. <laughs> the European relationship to space and the North American relationship to space is very different. <laughs> the idea of driving for six hours to get to your cottage is is not unusual here in North America, oh. but you know you drive for six hours in Europe and you've crossed one or two international borders as well. So, it, uh, yeah, we, we do have a higher tolerance for distance, and the, the bloody country's like five, six thousand kilometers wide. So it, it's pretty big.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 not something I can comprehend at all. Even I mean, if you drove for six hours in Britain, then you you've probably spent quite a bit of money. Let alone mm. anything else. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just uneconomical to do it. Yeah. Um, you drive eight hours and you've gone from like London to Edinburgh. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, and there's, you know, there's a bit more you can go, but that's
1: most of the length for the whole country. <laughs> That'd be a lovely drive, anyway. Interestingly, I was just looking. It's totally off topic. It's nothing to do with martial arts, but I was just doing some research uh, of like how to do a canoe trip in England. So it was very confusing because Stonehenge is close to a, the River Avon and then of course yes. I was like well I could link that to uh Stratford Stratford on Avon right Shakespeare's uh Avon well it turns out that there's about 5 or 6 rivers in in England yeah, called, Avon, you ca- yes. called Avon so <laughs> I was yeah. very confused trying to figure out how to link Stonehenge and Stratford and it can't really be done without a very long portage
0: No it's um, I think Avon is the old Celtic word for river so ah so it's the river yeah, river it's a river <laughs> yeah um and also like the way you want to be going uh, it's great canoeing is the um, the river why um really? through wales yeah that that's that's nice it's beautiful scenery um and you can canoe most of it i think um <laughs> yeah anyway top tip <laughs> it's it's a bit less challenging than the things you're used to because you you tend to get in a canoe and go across the outback.
1: Uh, The Canadian wilds, don't you? Uh, That is one of my prototypical sort of peak experiences, yes. And I uh, I had to take a break from it for a while when the kids were extremely young, but now the kids are older and they're not going to forget who I am when I'm gone. (laughs) So either, you know, doing it alone or or with someone, I I enjoy both of those experiences very much. They're different. Uh, The only experience I don't really like is guiding i thought for a long time that i'd be a, a wilderness guide but it's it's very different you know say you and i go on a trip the expectation is that roughly we're going to do equal amounts of work right you might gather the yeah. firewood i might pitch the tent i might make dinner uh you might i don't know put up the tarp whatever but when you're guiding then you're just you know a cook and a babysitter and a yeah. lifeguard and a life coach and a nanny all at one and it just the there's no time left to experience the wilderness. You're just continuously, you know, running and, you know, picking up toys after people.
0: That not sound much fun.
1: Yeah. It's it enjoyable. I mean, it's better than working at McDonald's. It's better yeah. than working yeah. at a desk. But it wasn't the sort of the, the answer, the, the one job to rule them all that I thought it would be initially. But, you know, you go yeah. try these things. In my case, I tried it for a couple of summers. And it, it was a good experience. But it wasn't... You know, as much you know, it wasn't as enjoyable as I thought it would be, or as I thought it should be.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I mean, we should really talk about martial arts because happy, <laughs> that's why happy. I got you on yep. here. Yep. <laughs> um, I mean, re- I mean recently you've, you've you've had a hip replacement, haven't you? Which is, yep. I I I wouldn't. Would you say it was caused by martial arts practice, or do you th- I think it's just mm-hmm. genetic?
1: I think it's it's all of the above and it's unknowable ultimately. Yeah. So, I had a hip replacement seven and a half weeks ago. Uh, it had been bothering me for, I'd say, five years. I, I remember actually hanging out with my friend Richie Yip, and we just finished a training session. And uh, this is about 10 or 11 years ago. And I threw a sidekick and I threw a sidekick, and it felt like my leg was just going to fall off, right? It, it was just, I threw it, it extended like, oh God. Yeah, it, just, yeah. it gave out. And it's like, that's really weird. So I threw a sidekick at a bunch of different angles. There was just this one angle uh, where where it would give out. And I'd thrown tens or hundreds of thousands of sidekicks. And so it was kind of strange to have this happen. So I went and looked at it and they said, oh yeah, moderate moderate osteoarthritis. You know, we don't know what caused it. I mean, I I have my suspicions. We'll talk about that later. It just kept on getting worse. And about five years ago, it got pretty bad. And, uh... It would really ache after doing jujitsu. <clears throat> it would really ache after running. Hmm. And so I started getting these hip injections, which are it's like a 12-inch long needle that goes in through the front of your thigh and goes right into the hip capsule and fills it up with either a substance called monovisc or synvisc, which is like a goopy loop. Lub- Think of it as a lubricant for your joints. So what it does, it right, creates yeah. a little bit more hmm. space in between the two joint surfaces. Mm-hmm. So that bought me another five years. <clears throat> which I'm glad because most people, when they have a hip replacement, they're dealing with two issues. They're dealing with, well, the bone, obviously like they cut through the bone, but then they're also dealing with years of muscular atrophy because they haven't been doing anything. So I mm. think those hip injections, which were not cheap, is probably about $1,500 a year. Mm. Uh, I don't know what that is in pounds, probably a 1,000 pounds a year. Yeah, well, not...
0: yeah 1,200 maybe. Okay. Something
1: like that. So it's not cheap. But it allowed me to keep going, and thus, when I went into the surgery, I was in fairly good shape despite having very bad hips. Yeah. Um, and yeah, since then it's, it's come back. Great guns. Uh, today is going to be my first. After we finish here, it's going to be my first day back on the mats. It's going to be very gentle. It's going to be like old, you're, slow. You're back
0: on the mats already.
1: Yeah. It's it's going to it's going to be with a lot of caveats. It's it's mostly going to yeah. it's going to be drilling. Like it's not yeah, going to yeah. be not Death rolling, rolling. Yeah.
0: no. Yeah. <laughs> My friend um Bartek who's in Poland um he is he's in a similar situation to the where you were, where he's he's looking at a hip replacement. He's a jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. guy as well. Um so he's been very interested in your your progress and he, he's very concerned that you're pushing yourself too hard. Uh-huh. Um so he'd
1: like he'd like to tell
0: you just to take it easy.
1: Um I, I have <laughs> I have pushed it too hard on the sixth day after the hip So the first three days are just horrific. And and for me, yeah, there was pain, which I exacerbated because I didn't take any of the opioids. I didn't take any of the Tylenol 3s. had some prescriptions for oxycodone. But for me, the gut issues that result from the opioids, I would make a terrible heroin addict. I would be a very, very (laughs) grumpy, very (laughs) constipated heroin addict. So (laughs) uh, It's not worth it. (laughs) Not worth it. Not worth it. Uh, Happy gut, happy life. I think that's the saying in some culture somewhere. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I just put up with pain. And then the sleep disruption was quite incredible. But you know, mm. I, I would go to this model where I would sleep. I'd go to bed at 11 and then get up at 2. And then, like, I, I don't binge on Netflix. But I was binging on Netflix. And then for a couple, two, three hours, and I'd go back. again get another hour. I'd get up. And I'd. so the sleep disruption was the hardest part. But at six days, I went for a a three-kilometer walk with a couple of walking poles. And that felt pretty Mm -hmm. good. It felt pretty badass. Like, yeah, I've got the hang of this. And the next 24 hours were just spent in a fetal (laughs) position, rocking back and forth as chills (laughs) and uh, (laughs) waves of fatigue and nausea came over me. So tell them I did overdo it, but I haven't really overdone it since. Uh, I mean, I've got the go-ahead from my surgeon to to load the crap out of it uh
0: okay well if the surgeon says it's fine then then why not
1: well the surgeon says be careful because you can still have soft tissue like the the bone itself is fine the joint itself is fine yeah yeah the soft tissue around i mean they they do go through i did read the procedure for the hip replacement they cut through an awful lot of stuff right they cut through the glute then they peel that apart with their fingers and they go through the you know the capsule they peel that up then they dislocate your hip they kind of dislocate yeah. it with like an extreme heel hook type maneuver, like an oh, inward nice. rotation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is, explains why my knee hurt a little bit after surgery. It's like, well, that's weird. The <laughs> knee hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But cause It's because you have nice. to
0: wrench your whole leg around to dislocate the hip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh. So. I mean, it's, it, it's a
0: good job you're asleep, isn't it, really?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's They don't do the full, they don't do the general anesthetic anymore, which I'm grateful for because that takes a long time to recover from. I've had enough surgeries. I can I've got preferences about anesthetics. Uh they do a spinal block and then they give you enough valium so you pass out. So it takes a while to clear yeah. that from your system but not as much as the old general anesthetic.
0: Yeah, I've only I've only ever had one. Uh What did you have uh, done? big um orbital floor replacement um, okay. which was a jiu-jitsu injury. Um yeah. uh, accidental headbutt to to eye socket. Right. Um but um yeah, that, they had to. They had to like knock me out completely and put a steel mesh in um, to, to form the the bottom right. of my eye socket.
1: They would have to pop your eyeball out first.
0: They didn't. No, they just lifted it up. Oh, really? There's lift. There's lift up. Okay. Slide it underneath. Drill two. Drill two <laughs> screws oh. in, and then um, okay. then then you're good to go. So, you so don't even notice it now at all. It's just pretty good. To be I have
1: fractured my orbital, but I didn't need surgery. So I just remember that right. weird time when you. Are seeing double, and also if you blow your nose, then your oh, whole yeah, yeah. eyelid <laughs> and your whole eye <laughs> inflates like a balloon. Oh,
0: that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Mine didn't do that at all. Um, mm. It was if I looked upwards, I went double because because the floor had fallen away. So my, right. my the muscles underneath the eyeball were all just sagging down into this. There's a big void underneath there, um, which is it's designed almost as a like a uh, like a fail safe. You know, if you have too much pressure on the eyeball, the bottom just blows mm. out so that it goes rather than your eyeball exploding okay um, so it's pushed was, up into was,
1: your brain yeah yeah <laughs>
0: exactly yeah i think no what what it would it, it would just it would just pop you know mm. um but luckily the, the you know your, your bone breaks so that it doesn't pop which is how it's meant to work mm. um which is good um, well
1: that you asked if i thought that martial arts had caused the hip and i think yeah the answer is sort of yes i mean my father who was not nearly as active as i was had hip problems in his late 50s early 60s and so there's probably a genetic component there right i mean if you're imagine if you were blessed with a hip socket in which the cartilage was four times as thick as a normal human being you could get away with you know in my pea brain anyway four times Mm. as much shit and abuse for your hip uh now when you've thrown thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of kicks. Each kick wears it out a little bit when you've lifted heavy weights. And especially in my case, I really enjoyed running. I hated running when I started it. I just loathed it. But after a couple of years, I made a breakthrough and it just clicked. And I started, I mean, I was never a great runner. I have a body weight of, you know, somewhere between 205 and 225 for the years I was running. And if you're more than 200 pounds, you're, you've got a inherent shelf life on your running career it's mm. just so much pounding but it's so damn convenient right if you have 25 minutes <laughs> you can take 30 seconds to put your shoes on go for a 20 minute run take a shower and still be out the door right you can mm. there's there's nothing that, that beats it for efficiency but when i was traveling I'd go to a different city i'd put on the shoes and i'd go and you'd not only get a great workout in you can see the city you can begin to learn it and because you're running you're you know, unlikely to run into problems because not too many people are gonna run after you. <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> just keep moving faster than the problems. And so I think that did a lot. Also, I did a lot of judo. And judo is a beautiful mm. art. It's a wonderful sport. Uh it's the definitely the ancestor of jiu jitsu and or Brazilian jiu jitsu. You know, Japanese jiu jitsu is the ancestor of judo, is the ancestor of the jiu jitsu that we do now. Mm. Uh and, but all that falling, all that impacting on, especially on like those old straw tatami that have been sitting in the bottom of some community center for 20 years and are basically rock solid or actually doing yeah. judo on wooden floors because we were tough. We weren't smart. Yeah. We were tough. Uh, that does add up. I, mean, I remember taking a fall on my right hip in Montreal, uh, and on a wooden floor and I think it dislocated. I think it tore the labrum and that I was on crutches for a week. That's the agonizing pain and it got better. And it, shockingly, I think that's, well, that's definitely the hip that got injured. And that's definitely the hip that got replaced first. So, you know, stuff like that adds up, but we live in a very fortunate time that a lot of these injuries can be repaired. And the hip is one of the best joints to have replaced.
0: Yeah, so. I mean that's that's the thing, um I mean we've been talking to Bartek a lot about this recently, is is like once you once you get it done, it's done for the next sort of fifteen to twenty years, isn't it? Um, before you need to have it done again. Yeah. So you, you're pretty much just you're good to go again, aren't you? You just completely get your training back.
1: Yeah, I think based on conversation with surgeons, I mean it's all a, a question of risk. The the real danger like if you if you dislocate a hip that's been yeah, done—that's yeah. really bad. Yeah. And the way to dislocate somebody who's somebody's hip who's had a hip replacement is basically to flex their knee, so bring their knee up towards their chest and bend their leg, and then rotate it inward. So imagine doing like a leg drag, and then mm-hmm. jumping on top of the person, so they or a, a really really violent uh, uh, sort of leg smash where you where you twist their legs one way. So it's that inward mm-hmm. rotation. Mm plus the flexion of the leg because that's essentially the position they have to put your leg in to dislocate it to do the hip replacement. So now if you get put into that position violently hmm. before your muscles can activate to uh to kind of stabilize the situation, that's the danger. So yeah.
0: that's a pretty uh, common th- a pretty common position to be in in yeah. rolling in jiu-jitsu, isn't it? It's not like it's yeah. unusual. No. It's pretty pretty run of the mill, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so it's it's not being in that position, it's being forced into that position rapidly, is my understanding. Now, right. I don't think this applies to, you know, a 110-pound a 70-year-old who has no muscle left in the legs. And basically their legs are the size of their arms. But if you're decently athletic, and you have some decent muscle. This is, This is my current theory. Maybe I'll come on your podcast two years from now going, oh my God, was (laughs) I ever wrong? (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) But if I strengthen the crap out of the legs, right? if I'm squatting and deadlifting and doing unilateral exercises like lunges, like split squats, uh, Hmm. like one-legged hip bridges, and just strengthen the muscles around that. And then if I roll with caution, I think my days of rolling with you know, 20-year-old steroided uh, wannabe UFC fighters is pretty much over. I mm. I mean, it's not just... I've, I've got a lot of mileage on the hip. There's a lot of other injuries lined up right behind that one. And at this point, the game is longevity. It's not <clears throat> necessarily being as good as I can, as fast as I can. If you want to get really good really fast, then you spar really hard with really good people who are really bringing it to you. But that's got uh, a whole bunch of inherent dangers and drawbacks. So at this point, I'm going to limit my training for the immediate future and possibly forever to lighter people, older people, slower people, at least until I get the hang of what the hip is going to do in those situations. Because it's not like it's not like you know, "Boop, boop 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 boop, nothing 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 dislocate. It's like boop 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 boop, hurts 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 more. It's it's more like a an arm lock rather than a heel hook, right? The heel hook comes on super quick. Yeah, it doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt. Oh my god. Whereas an arm lock, it hurts, it hurts more, it hurts more, yeah, yeah. then it dislocates. So it's it's that's my current theory.
0: What you what you're describing is basically my approach to rolling because I'm I'm fifty now. Um mm-hmm. I'm a I am am still rolling with the the new white belts when they come in. I don't I don't really try and avoid them yet. I think mm-hmm. give me another ten years and I would definitely be avoiding them, but at the moment, I'm st- I'm still kind of... I feel sort of young enough mm-hmm. that I can still, you know, um, get involved with them. Uh, but I do notice more and more that I'm thinking, uh, you know, when my leg goes in, in in a position that just doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. I really just back out of it rather than... 100%. Rather than try... Because there's always those moments where you think, look, if I just pushed hard at, a bit to the right here, I'd flip them over. I'll be on top. I was like, I just... I really, now at this stage of my life, I just go, nope, I'm just going to back up, go back to guard, and we're going to start again because it's not worth it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Tapping, to the extreme of that, you're just talking about backing out, but the extreme of that is tapping out. So tapping out is, yes, you caught me in a legitimate submission and you're either going to choke me unconscious or break my arm unless I tap out. But tapping out also can mean, you know what? My knee really doesn't feel good. It's just caught in a weird position here and... Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, am unsure about what's going to happen. Tap, tap. Let's, 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 let's just make sure that I can train well for the next three months by, by one, by, by the two seconds that it takes to tap out, you're buying yourself potentially three months of training time. Because if you, if it doesn't go well and you tear your LCL, you're basically not going to train for call it two to three months. Yeah. Assuming it's not an awful LCL tear, but just your your run of the mill. I think that's something I've become cognizant about, cognizant of, and especially with the neck, like a lot of people get caught in these weird kind of neck cranky type things. Like, Mm. yeah, it's
0: not really a choke. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tap because it's not a choke. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I can still feel like I'll say now 15 years later, 17 years later, the time that I thought i was out of my friend uh my friend's uh stocks right? it's a neck crank type of position i think i'm out yeah. i think i'm out oh god like uh yeah yeah and i i still feel that one sparring session 17 years later oh, that's and amazing so <laughs> i, sh- I should have tapped i should have tapped yeah
0: uh, but you, you've got you've got sec i mean you've got seconds to make your mind up haven't you
1: um So you almost have to need to make... You almost need to make your mind up about those things in advance. Yes, you the truth. Like, if I get caught in some weird neck crank type thing, I'm just going to tap. The end. Mm. The end. Mm. If if you have to think about it in the moment, then it's going to take too long. But if you made up your mind in advance, then... It's almost
0: like having a plan before you go into battle, isn't it? Like, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, obviously, but having a plan which is that if my neck gets in a bad place, I'm just going to tap before I have to think, do I need to tap? Yeah. Then you're in a better place when you start, I think.
1: Both things are true. Uh, was that uh, your quote there? I think it's Helmut von Moltke, the elder, uh, the, yes, Prussian, yes. the Prussian general. Prussian, from...
0: The Prussian general, yes. Although, uh, I mean, everyone from Muhammad Ali to Mike Tyson has yeah. used that quote.
1: Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, yeah. So that's that's true, but on the other hand, plan beats no plan. Plan, you know, if, if you have two nations going to war and one has got a detailed war plan and the other's like, we're just gonna fight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. the plan it's- is gonna beat the we're just gonna fight. So yeah. both things. It's can like be true Ro- at the same Romans
0: time. versus um, ancient Britons, you know. they're... Ancient Britain's approach to warfare was to get high on mushrooms, take your clothes off, paint off blue, and charge, <laughs> and charge in. And the Romans were in lines with shields and spears, you know. Like, um, I, I yeah, do wonder different.
1: how much of the sort of the Celtic vision of war was Roman, because this, this is all recorded by Romans, right? It's yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. makes for a better story than we were attacked <laughs> by naked warriors <laughs> charging us, but us, our disciplined Roman ways held the day, right? It, it, they were writing for an audience, now, I, there's probably some truth in that, but I, it'd be nice to see, you know... I'd, yeah. Like uh, the podcaster Dan Carlin, it'd be amazing to see one of these battles in <laughs> real life. It, it'd be heartbreaking, it'd be gut-wrenching, but it'd be amazing to see... It uh, would be horrendous. I mean, the, yeah. the, the,
0: the idea of people chopping each other up with swords... and
1: At close range.
0: I, it, it it must just have been... I mean, we, we I don't think in our modern age we can quite comprehend what those... Th- you know, we've got nothing to compare it to,
1: really. Yeah.
0: All, all, all modern wars are done with um, heat-seeking missiles from 10,000 miles away, aren't they? And all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's it's just a different world.
1: Well, even World War I, which is often, you know, people often think of the battle in the trenches as the most horrible thing that they could do. And it's very different. You know, they're still shooting at each other mostly from a long distance away. And it's, it's yeah. an awful situation that goes on for months and months and months and months. Whereas most ancient battles were over in an afternoon, in a couple of days, but for that afternoon it would have been unthinkable carnage. So it, yeah, um, the uh, uh, the up close and personal aspect of it. I imagine that uh, there must have been just a massive amount of like PT, what we would call PTSD now. I mean, it's it's. Mm floating around the uh the ranks of the people who'd been in the military in, in ancient times but maybe there was so much social uh reinforcement that, that was a good thing maybe it was lessened right like now it's like oh you went to to war poor dear let's you know let's let's talk about it Whereas back then like yes you went to war awesome okay off to the next one like okay maybe i i don't have those feelings i, I don't know it's it's completely uh impossible to judge
0: yeah, yeah, there's um, I mean, where I'm from, in uh, which is sort of the English Welsh border, um, there's a just outside Shrewsbury, there's a place called Battlefield, which was the battlefield of okay. um, one of the War of the Roses battles, and it was meant to have been the most bloody battle in English history, really, at that point. And out in this field, they, after the battle, I think it was so traumatic that they actually built a church um, and it's quite a big church but it, it's not near a village, it's not near a town, it's just sort of in the middle of nowhere so it's really odd that there's just this um, very large church um, and I think it, it was their way of dealing with the mm. the, the, the pure carnage, you know, they, they had to do something to try and make amends. Like I think both sides felt so awful about the whole thing that... Um, yeah and this church is still there today um although it's not as big as it used to be some parts have been removed um
1: i don't know much about the war of the roses i did try to read a little bit about it a few years ago but it's incredibly complicated yeah what what resource would you recommend other than game of thrones which is apparently based off of the war of the roses
0: (laughs) um i i don't know i'm not Hmm. an expert on on that i mean there's there's a there's a book called The White Queen that was it's like a it's not a historical um it's a fictional sort of account of the War of the Roses but that was that was very good it was made into a TV series um and if you want the sort of a a sort of pop culture you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: something with a, a good story to it that was quite good and then and then um you have got. Um, I mean, later on, you've got, or you know, that that leads on to the Tudor era. Then you've got um, Hilary Mantel and or or her kind of versions of of history. I mean, I quite like. I prefer those things to the the, the, the brutal hard facts. Which mm. yeah, there's only so much of that I can I can absorb in one go. You
1: know. I thought Hilary Mantel's uh, Wolf Hall and was it bring up bring up your dead bring up the bring up the bodies bring up the bodies yeah, it was excellent, and I thought the TV adaptation of uh wolf hall was just amazing yeah the, the young the mark
0: in, yeah yeah young henry yeah, my, f- my friend antonio who's a jiu-jitsu teacher uh, where, I, where i live here um he's in it he's a he's, a, he's oh, really? an extra yeah okay. yeah he he was in bisping's uh never back down three or four that's <laughs> the one that's just come out that michael bisping's in he's he's one of the baddies like i don't think he gets many lines or anything but He's in there somewhere. But he was in Wolf Hall, um, and he was standing next to Mark Rylance for a, a shot. And that's about, that's about <laughs> it. Claim <laughs> to fame. Yeah,
1: but, yeah. yeah. Actually,
0: he just got his black belt um, last Friday. Um, I was there, which yeah, was really, really really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so coming back to martial arts, which we should really talk about, jiu-jitsu. Um, you started way back with jiu-jitsu. And, I, and the, thing, the thing about you, that when I started... I brought some of your instructionals, so
1: okay, thank you.
0: Yeah, it, they were really good. And it was the Emily Quox series because I'm a, a smaller guy, and the, the, how, how to beat the, a bigger, stronger opponent was was a very great. It was a great title because it summed up exactly what I wanted to find out about jujitsu. Because I'd be go to I'd go to class and get sort of crushed by mm. a guy that was significantly heavier than me, um, and then I needed a solution. And then you brought out this series about how to beat someone who was bigger and heavier um there was that there's one with emily quok and then there was the one with brandon mullings which Mm was had the same title but they're completely different content yeah um and i i I love the emily quok stuff because i was really into marcelo garcia's style Mm -hmm. of jiu-jitsu the x-guard single x all that kind of stuff and then brandon also had a lot of really good stuff about uh how to stay on top when you were smaller you know, mm-hmm. he did, I remember one particular thing I particularly remember about his idea that when they you've just got to ride them if they're bigger than you. You know, if they, if they sort of bench press you off, you you kind of go this way and then wait for them to come back down and then you come down again. Um, the thing about the, the instructionals was when I started Jiu Jitsu, which was about 2011, there was this big thing about, oh, you shouldn't watch YouTube, you shouldn't watch YouTube um, it, mm. it, it, it's, it's, it's the way of the devil you'll learn all these bad habits and everything and nowadays no one says that anymore no. because there's so many quality instructionals out there I mean at the time yours was one of the the quality ones um, What? How, how do you as someone who was putting out instructionals at the time what? how do you sort of remember that whole attitude of uh, you should only learn from your instructor you shouldn't learn from video and then yeah and then comparing that to nowadays
1: well there's a grain of truth in that like like Mm. all lies like all conspiracies like all crazy thoughts there's there's there is a grain of truth and that is that there was an awful lot of complete horse shit available in the uh, early 2000s call it 2005 to 2010 of people showing stuff that would never ever 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 work and there Mm. wasn't a ton of there wasn't proportionally as much good stuff. So I, I I thought that overall this, you know, don't go to YouTube was ridiculous. But there was a grain of truth there that if you, know, if you didn't have any context at all, you could end up learning a bunch of techniques that would never, ever work. That being said, uh, nothing that you see on YouTube, it doesn't matter if it's, I don't know... Um, Hodger Gracie. Hodger Gracie's got a pretty good mount attack. Let's give him that. He's got a pretty good record of choking people with a cross choke. So mm. let let's say he knows his cross choke, right? He's at least a brown belt level with a cross choke from mount. Uh, so he makes a video showing every one of his details. That video is useless if you don't go train it. Mm. So you won't know. Like if you if you pixelate Hodger Gracie's head. And you put that beside another video of some idiot, Ari Bolden say, showing his version of the cross choke from mountain. You don't know that one is a world champion, multiple time world champion, and the other is a fraud, Hmm. but they show different details. If you've never done jujitsu, you won't know which is better until you go and try it. And you won't be able to incorporate those details until you go train it. So... Yes, if you just sit there watching YouTube videos, and there was a certain type of trainee who would like spend all day watching YouTube videos. Yes, well, uh, Marcelo Garcia does the X guard this way with his toes angled up at a forty-five degree angle, whereas if you look at this other player, his his toes angle only at a thirty-eight degree angle. So now, blah blah blah, like it, they without the experience of actually doing it and trying it. It's useless and without the time on the mat to take that technique and make it your own, it's useless. Now, most people realize that at an intuitive level, that they actually have to train what they see. And if you train what you see and you, there's, I don't know, casting showing you how to do a heel hook one way and somebody else is showing you how to do a heel hook the other way, you got to try them both. <clears throat> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the other way is better. Maybe my way is better. Maybe my way is better. For your body type, maybe my way is better against a certain kind of opponent. Uh, maybe the other way of doing it is better when the guy's legs are eight feet long and the su- he's super flexible, mm-hmm. right? It, it, without the the experience adding context, it's it's all of this stuff. No, no matter what it is, is useless. And in retrospect. I also want to say it's fairly obvious that this don't go to YouTube. YouTube's a devil is motivated, is a motivated argument. It's an argument that serves, that's self-serving. Well, Professor Sifu Sensei, if YouTube is bad, then does that mean that I should only learn from you? Yes, you should only learn from me. And I've just doubled my prices. And now you've got to buy, (laughs) you know, the special proprietary gi and rash guard and underwear and jockstrap from my school it's got the little, I don't know, the little school logo on it. And they cost four times as much as a regular gi. So there, there is motivated... It's not motivated reasoning. It's motivated logic or motivated... Uh, there, There's a hidden motivation there. It's not that well hidden. Why you should never go to YouTube. I, I think that you're correct, though. That's much less common now than it used to be. I think to some extent, they've just given up.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's almost like... Phases of the art, like it's it's, it's the evolution of jujitsu. I think I think the, the the digital thing was such a strong mm. uh, driver for the growth of mm-hmm. the art. I think because you could you could get stuck on something in class. Somebody did this to me, you, and after class you can just go home and look up the answer. Yep. Uh, such a powerful tool. Like um, it's there aren't many martial arts where you can do that. And it has such a dramatic effect as well. Like once you've gone and looked at the answer, you could go back and try it tomorrow and see if it worked and then work out your own little variation of it. Um, And
1: the speed at which it disseminates is incredible. Let's go back to, uh, I don't know, the 1500s in England. So we're jousting. And I've just discovered this brand new technique to use my lance to knock you off your horse more effectively. I I don't know enough about jousting. I've only seen it a couple of times. (laughs) But, But let's assume it's a... I don't know a counterclockwise twist as I'm about to hit you, yeah. or, or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. like
0: a, a little, just a little twist as you as you hit the shield. Or okay, perfect,
1: and that just doubles the chances of me unhorsing yeah. you. Awesome. So, who sees that? The people at the tournament, maybe they don't have, they can't film it. They're not there with their iPhone, you know, 13 Max, <laughs> filming it to replay it in slow mo and zoom in. So mm. maybe a couple people said I wonder did I really see that? And then they're not going to share it. They're not going to rush out and make YouTube videos going the secret which allowed Sir Stefan of Canada to effectively unhorse whoever Robert Baratheon uh <laughs> like it it that secret might have gotten transmitted to a couple of people who would have immediately kept it secret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, same goes for sword fighting, right? If I found a new secret combination to more effectively go through the chink in the armor in your armpit, great. I'm probably going to keep that to myself. I'm probably not going to share it, put it on YouTube, say, hey, if you ever fight me in single combat, here's how to defeat me. But for some reason in jiu-jitsu, and it's it's financially motivated mostly, Mm. uh, but not completely, people are putting some of their very best secrets online. That being said, some of the uh, uh, big-name teachers do definitely teach... Uh, two or three iterations behind what they're actually teaching to their superstars, right? They'll teach last year's techniques or two years ago, which is still valid, but not as refined as what they're doing now. They're they're trying to preserve the cutting edge stuff for their competition guys. So there's a little bit of that going on. But bottom line is, if you go out and you win the world's tomorrow with a leaping Barambolo Plata from stand-up off of a sleeve grip, the whole like tomorrow or that afternoon there's going to yeah. be 20 kids trying it in 20 different gyms so
0: yeah 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 it's different isn't it hmm. the the situation with the the just it suddenly just reminded me of the um the, you know the heel hook situation when you know when henzo's gym and Danaher came out with their sort of system for for a little while. It was a sort of super secret thing, um, mm-hmm. it, you know. It, it, I mean, Danaher himself has made a DVD on it now, so um, the information's out there. But that was the only time I can think of something that was a little bit secret, and a group of guys were just keeping the information themselves.
1: Yeah, um, that's interesting because I I don't think. Many of the techniques they were doing were new, but putting mm. it into a system where like you, you start with this, if the guy does that, then you do this, and sort of connecting the pieces together, that was more of the uh uh the secret sauce mm. and it's It's really unfortunate that i there's more and more evidence I think from talking to people that Eddie Cummings was really at the core of that mm. that expansion of leg locks and i mean he's last i heard i think he's an investment banker now so (laughs) uh, i I would love to you know i i don't think we'll ever sort of get the truth and we'll never get to see what details he brought to the game and uh but you know it's i think it's important that eddie cummings get given a lot of credit i mean i had him on my podcast years ago yeah but uh you know i'd i'd love to to have him on the podcast again but i guess when you're have the potential to make 10 million dollars in an hour uh you know doing whatever investment bankers do uh you're you're going to you the opportunity cost of appearing on a podcast is is rather high
0: yeah although i also quite i really like the idea that um that he could just be interested in something else Yeah. And that you know like we we, t- we tend to take things very seriously in the jiu-jitsu world and then you get some guy who's he trailblazes a path of innovation and then just goes oh I'm bored of <laughs> that now I'm, I'm going to go going to go do banking instead and then because they you know people generally have different interests and in, like things are different things are important to mm. to people and then quite often we think what's important to us is important to them and it isn't at all
1: to um, be good at something whether it's uh, jiu-jitsu archery, investment banking, God help me, golf. I'm assuming it's true for golf. <laughs> yeah. There's a certain amount of obsession required. Like there's, now, jiu-jitsu is a bit limited because you're limited by the number of hours that you can put in, on the mats because your body just gets destroyed. It's like, uh, why do triathletes spend so much time biking? It's because they can't spend that much time running. If they spent, if they did, I've got triathlete friends who spend like, they'll go out for a six hour ride. They can't go out for a six hour run every, you know, three times a week because it would just destroy their body. Jiu-jitsu is the same way. You can't reliably and sustainably spend six hours a day on the mat of hard training. I mean, some guys do. They're cranked out of their mind on steroids. Yeah, They're also forever injured. And they're lucky, right? It's a survivor bias. They're the guys who <clears throat> have managed to avoid career-ending injuries. Uh, but that, that obsessiveness is required, especially jiu-jitsu. I mean, there's so many moves and counter moves and things to keep track of in jiu-jitsu that yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're going to be performing <laughs> at a world... The, the days of recreational world champions is long gone. I mean, oh, there yeah. were some...
0: I, I, yeah, I realized that very quickly. I... I you know, I, I realized that I was a hobbyist very yeah. quickly in the sport when I, when I went through a few competitions and then realized yeah. how much work was required to maintain that. But it, it was that wasn't like, always true. <laughs> there was an era yeah, in yeah.
1: jiu-jitsu, I'll say in the 80s, when the top-tier guys were pretty obsessive, but you could do pretty damn well in the sport. And some big names in the sport were training like three times a week. They just had good memories and good physical attributes. Mm-hmm. But the the days of becoming world-class or, or close to world-class, like contender level, mm-hmm. training three times a week, and then, you know, putting in, going to like five times a week before a competition, those days are over. So, but my yeah. point about the obsessiveness is, <clears throat> have you ever met pe- people who are serially obsessed? I mean, you know, there's uh, people who are like, they're focused, 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 focused on this. And then the next day they're focused, 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 focused on this mm. other thing. Yeah, and then yeah. they switch. So like uh, they can
0: only they can only do things in one way, which is to be completely yeah. obsessed about something. And then if it's something else, they completely switch their entire yeah. life to yeah. being about something else. Yeah.
1: And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's probably something in their wiring. Yeah. Every everybody wants to be normal. Nobody wants to be average. I say screw being normal. I say screw being average. And if that's the if that's the way you are, if you're like the compulsive, I don't know, windsurfer one for two years. And then you're a compulsive—I don't know—amateur uh, historian focusing on uh, Sumerian clay tablets. Like, who, who are we to judge, right? You, yeah, you yeah, don't get, yeah. You don't get a second crack at this, and if that's what makes you happy, go for it. So, by, yeah. by the same token, I'll say, like, <clears throat> another back to this YouTube argument. Yeah, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't look at YouTube. <clears throat> uh, you're not gonna, you're gonna be doing all this fancy stuff. Maybe yeah. you know all this fancy stuff when you should be working the basics. Well, I would agree that learning to escape side control is pretty important and it's probably for a white belt with two stripes probably more important to work on the side mount escapes than their barambolo. But you know what? If work on the barambolo makes them happy, who are again, who are we to judge? Like this idea of you know everything has to be geared towards competition effectiveness it is is ego that's ego on the part of the instructor. Like if, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the most contentious arguments that you see at a tournament are about, not about individual matches, but it's of the Brazilian guys arguing about team rankings. And, mm. you know, that's the closest I've seen to uh, people getting in a fist fight at a jiu-jitsu tournament is when they were trying to figure out how you rank the point. I guess it wasn't made clear before standard Brazilian yeah. organized tournament. Like how many points you got for a gold medal? Do you count the kids' medals? Do you, and there were two teams that were basically within a couple points of each other for the team trophy. And that's when it got really heated. So if that's, if you're an instructor, especially, and I'll say it's worse, typically worse for the Brazilians. I think it's just culturally that idea of the team trophy is the the big thing. Um, then of course you're going to push every single person in your club to compete, of course. Because every additional body in there is an additional chance to get a gold medal right you're going to just the solution to pollution is dilution you're just going to dilute the crap out of the other team mm-hmm. and you're going to push everybody to compete and you're going to want them to do just the most effective stuff whereas you know so that what about that guy that recreational guy who doesn't really feel like competing who's like forever yeah. screwing around <laughs> with barambolo variations that's yeah. me <laughs> <Yeah. Well.
0: laughs> I, I'm lucky that my, my my teacher never like pushed me to compete I mean I started late in late in life for jiu-jitsu 39 mm-hmm. I started so I was already you know senior level whatever that is mm-hmm. I don't know it's, it's um but yeah but we, also my teacher um I mean it, you know that the school I'm in is Gracie Baja and mm-hmm. you know there's the, there's a lot of things said about Gracie Barra, but one of the things I really like about it is the Jiu Jitsu for everyone attitude mm. which is that it's not all about just killing everyone on the mats all day and forcing everyone to compete, only doing and just drilling relentlessly the, the most effective guard pass over and over forever. It's it's much more about um letting everyone you know, at different ages, different no. different sexes, different um body shapes sizes whatever um finding the jujitsu that works for you and you know i've, I've really re- what what's, what's kept me going i think is is that attitude of um it's not all about just smashing people it's about learning and growing and teaching and mm-hmm. uh that that sort of stuff i mean it's just it's kept me you know i i, I can't see myself stopping until i have to you know yeah um, and I think part of the attitude is that sort of jujitsu for everyone yeah. um,
1: idea. I have a lot of sympathy with that with that concept. Uh, I think it's important to realize that there are different kinds of schools. And that's why when people are like, what school should I go train at? The advice is always go check out every school within your potential radius. Try a class. Keep notes. Like actually keep notes about you know, their prices and their schedule and your first impressions. And then at the end of going and visiting all the schools, you'll know, because hmm. if you're uh, if you've got dreams of fighting in the UFC, you're going to go to a very different school than a jiu-jitsu is for everyone's school. Hmm. If you're 40 years old, uh, you're a musician and you can't have your fingers smashed up, you're going to go to a very different school than you know you know a place where they just train UFC. Right. Uh, if you're if you're female you you may not feel comfortable at a school that there's like one weird chicken you might want to go to a school where there's depending where there's an established uh cohort of women it's, it's kind of in these days this day and age it's kind of a red flag if you go to a school and there's no women there
0: yeah with it, it oh. I mean, jujitsu these days is nothing but red flags. If you if you look at the media, is it? I mean, I'd just yeah. like to say thank you for being a um, a guiding light for science and reason in the world of jujitsu yeah. during the pandemic as well. Um, oh. <laughs> I think I think a lot a lot of people appreciated your your what what you did for us all there.
1: Yeah, there there has been a lot of coverage. Uh, I, I think sort of sparked by the thing going on with Cyborg's Fight Sports School hmm. uh, in Florida of sort of the potential for sexual abuse within our community. And it's, I th- I think that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Like anytime you have kind of a hierarchical structure, whether it's a, you know, a church group, a cult, a jitsu school, uh, where we elevate people where we have sort of a very strict, a very well-developed hierarchy as well as kind of spiritual or, uh, uh, mental development claims as well. You know, jujitsu will Mm. improve your life. And I think it will, like, don't get me wrong. But when you start mixing that sort of self-improvement, self-fulfillment thing with a hierarchy there's an assumption that the people who are at the top of that hierarchy are good people i mean the yoga community's had to deal with this a lot right the uh, there's been a ton of scandals that have come out in the last 10 years about yoga gurus who are actually mm. alcoholics <laughs> who are actually abusing their students who are act- you know all the same accusations that are happening in jiu jitsu so yeah. i think to some extent the,
0: um- Sorry, it was the Zen community as well before that. Oh, I did before, not know before that. The, before the yoga guys got in on the action, when you know, a Zen a Zen group is is prime for sort of you know cultish behavior, isn't it? Um, I would imagine. Yeah they, yeah, they 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 had all sorts of scandals with um, leaders who were sleeping with students and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I, every, I, every group like that has them, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think. To some extent, I was talking about this with Avery Clements, who's covered a lot of this sort of sexual abuse and within the community. I think we agreed that there's a difference between sort of a student sleeping with an instructor, typically a female student sleeping with a male instructor. I'm sure there are other examples, but that's let's be honest, that's 90% of of what's going on at least. And sort of being done in a serial fashion and in a creepy way, I I think, you know, Hmm. It's like um like workplaces that try to legislate against relationships at the office. Well, if you want people to work 40 hours a week and they're they're spending a huge part of their waking hours at the office, it's unrealistic to expect that there aren't going to be workplace romances at bloom. It's going to be un- like unrealistic to think that there won't be jiu-jitsu school romances at bloom, and I can think of both examples where that those have had good endings or at least a good relationship came out of it, it was good for a while, and then it fell apart and the people went their separate ways. But that's a very different situation from, you know, come over to my house and give me a massage to, you know, some some student who's never expressed any interest in you and you're kind of using your position of power to to guilt them into it. Uh, I've heard of jiu-jitsu instructors giving like healing chi sessions in hot tubs <laughs> to you know underage uh underage instructors or underage students like it's it can get pretty gross and i think there's a world of difference between sort of a consensual relationship uh even within a power a, a situation where there's differing power dynamic where there's different differing levels of power and kind of a cultish behavior i mean the uh it's amazing how how often cult leaders, in every part of the world, in every time in history, end up deciding that really the best thing for all their students' development is that they sleep with them. Uh, <laughs> I remember hearing about uh, or reading about uh, Jim Jones from the People's Temple that ended up committing mass suicide in Guyana. There, uh, right, sleeping with his male students to just to prove to them that they were that they were gay, and that they were sinful. Right, he was going to very, very kindly you know, take this upon himself to show them just how gay they were. <sighs> uh, so, so, yeah, there's all kinds of shit in the community. It's very unfortunate. It's good that we're talking about it. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. It's, I think, undermining this reflexive hierarchy, this reflexive respect for hierarchy is important. If I'm a black belt, that means that presumably I'm... I can show you something about breaking someone's arm or choking them unconscious or uh, maybe defending myself. But it doesn't mean that I'm good for advice on stock investments. It doesn't mean that I'm good for advice on, for medical advice. Some of the worst medical advice I've ever received have come from martial artists, including big name, very experienced martial artists. It doesn't mean that I'm good for relationship advice. And it doesn't mean that I'm good for, you know, balancing your chakras with my special proprietary come over at 11 o'clock at night with a massage oil uh treatment uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, i'm only good at showing you how to break an arm
0: people sometimes treat me in a way that i'm uncomfortable with which is they mm. because i'm a, a black belt they'll be very deferential to me sometimes and it it, mm. it always it always um I was slightly uncomfortable with it. Yeah. It used to be. You know, it used to be worse when I was a, a, a tai chi teacher. Really? Um yeah, it, it, in jiu-jitsu people are deferential, but they're still going to try and break your arm. <laughs> I mean, <you're... laughs> yeah. in, in the world of tai chi, people would would be much more willing to try and put you on a a pedestal. And I'd be for- I just felt like I was forever trying to get off the pedestal mm. and go, "No, like these are skills I'm teaching you you can do this too like Mm. I'm not special it's just stuff it's just stuff I know that I'm teaching you and then you can do it as well but people almost didn't want to take the responsibility on themselves of having to work hard to do something and learn Mm. how to do it they'd rather just have me around and point at me and go oh he can do it look at Mm. that wow and I'd be really uncomfortable with that and I'd, I'd always be like trying to throw the power they were throwing onto me back at them which which
1: was always a source of conflict <laughs> do you think it's worse in the chinese martial arts because there's less empirical testing
0: yes absolutely um, i mean there is
1: push hands but i imagine that you know uh that's not as central to training as say sparring is in jiu-jitsu
0: yeah i mean i mean the, the style of martial arts i i did was it was very sparring based um okay. so there were there was the empirical testing it wasn't uh, at the level like you couldn't go in there weren't competitions around that you could just easily get into so you could try yourself against another school there was more sort of competing within the school um which is still better than not competing mm-hmm. within the school um uh but i think I was, our school was quite untypical of the mm-hmm. the world of tai chi in general it's it's push hands and you Know if you make someone move their foot, you've achieved mastery um, of something, you know. It, it, like, it was very sort of you know, quite often, Chinese martial arts, if you throw someone on the ground, you've won. And mm-hmm. from a jiu jitsu perspective, like, that's where the fight starts. Like, <laughs> no. we've, we've just started, why are you stopping? You know, like, the, there'd be almost like a call of stop if something yeah. went on the ground, yeah. And you'd, I'd, I'd never think, well, why, why stop? Like, it, it's there's. It's not over.
1: Well, that's when you start bringing in the, the whole legend legendary aspect. Well, you see, in ancient China, if you got thrown to the floor on a battlefield and there was a <laughs> thousand horses stampeding, then you would be trampled to death. So being thrown to the floor is the equivalent of dying. I'm making that up, but that's probably somebody yeah. who said that at some point.
0: I think it, it to do with weapons, isn't it, really? Um, mm. Like, if you if you're on the... Ground and the guy's got a sword, then you're probably just going to
1: (laughs) die. Well, if you watch the recreation of Japanese martial arts where they're fighting in armor, but they're obviously not using sharpened spears and sharpened swords, Mm. it's amazing how often that goes into a grappling range. Like, if, if I've got a sword and you've got a spear, I have two options I can run or I can try and close the distance. And if I close the distance, that's going to turn into a grapple. There's just no way around it. And the number of times it, yeah. that it ends with going to the ground and somebody pulling out their Tonto and trying to insert it in through the neck or yeah, into the armpit. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, so, it's same quite in high. the
0: medieval like medieval suits of armour, the, 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 the best way of killing a knight was to, to push him over. Mm-hmm. Get on top of him and try and work a knife in and, and he's just helpless then. Um mm-hmm. But let's remember that the people who had the good armor were the rich people. Most people fighting these battles were peasants and they didn't have armor <laughs> they had they had nothing you know um so i think i think we have a skewed perspective sometimes on fighting with weapons and armor because it was much more uh, the the professional soldiers and the rich people who could afford stuff like that mm-hmm. um and then as you get down to the general populace you basically you're just wearing your normal gear and, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> it's not going to be much help against somebody with a a decent spear.
1: Um, yeah, but then it then it evolves, right? I mean, then you end up with you know the uh, Swiss mercenaries ruling the battlefield for a hundred or two hundred years, and they they weren't heavily armored. They just had the training, and the they came up with a technique that countered that, and then as firearms came along, that countered that again. So it, it yeah, yeah. these things do go back and forth, but the to get back to the point about hierarchy, one thing that I do, and it's small, but I don't like the term and I it's so common that I'm gonna make a ton of enemies. I don't like the term professor. I don't like the term sifu sensei. I barely like the term coach. Because I mean coach has certain if you really want to give a title, really in English, the closest equivalent mm. is is coach. Mm. But I prefer the term Stefan. I prefer first name basis. Now that's that's not a popular opinion because so many people that's where they get their sense of self worth from. I'm a professor of jujitsu. Well, I mean, and, and by by giving by using that title by having that title, it creates a separation, right? It's like, oh, my professor, my master, yeah, you know, my sifu, my sensei is so powerful. Like, who doesn't want to go and yeah, I'm training with this guy, and he once killed what is it, the John Wick thing? Killed three guys in a bar with a pencil. You know, he killed 12 guys in a bar with a with a Sharpie. Uh so it it people at the bottom like it because they're they're training under somebody legit. How do we know he's legit? Because he's got this title. Grand Master of the Universe. The people at the top like it because it feeds their ego. And it it perpetuates. A hierarchical structure
0: yeah i do you know what i I, I agree with him and preach Bigleson I've had him on the podcast before, and he's done lots of 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 discussions about that very idea that he just doesn't you know he, if if people call him professor he says no call me god I and mean, he like yeah. he has to kind of go all the way up to the top as a joke you know um he he just really doesn't like it as a like like for the for the reasons you're saying that it installs this kind of false i don't know um image of somebody when they're just a person you
1: know well imagine here's the example that i use often but i don't think it like people say well the word professor in brazil just means teacher so we're just using the brazilian word for teacher it doesn't mean anything whereas professor in north america and in the uk means something very specific right it it, professor is somebody who's you know gotten a phd and then gotten typically is on working at a, has a position at a university and is a, has spent many decades perfecting their craft and has really come up through and is an expert in their field. Now the jitsu guys go, well, I've spent decades working r- 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 my craft and uh, I'm an expert in the field. And that's true, but it's, it's kind of a position reserved for academia. So now, well, it means it means teacher in Brazil in Portuguese, okay? What if we were training in a different martial art from a different country where I don't know Papua New Guinea, and if the word for teacher in Papua New Guinea ish sounded a lot like, I don't know, pedophile. it <laughs> it's, It doesn't mean pedophile. that's just the, the Papua yeah, New Guinea yeah. word for for teacher. Pedophile. Nobody was saying it, would they? <laughs> Nobody would say it. Nobody would say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> My a <name's>... pedophile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We would all very quickly find a different term to use. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah.
0: it's a good. It's a good point. Uh, like I like that way of switching it around and looking at it from the other way around. Yeah. Um. But know, I, I like priests. Like,
1: you know, just call me God.
0: <laughs> yeah, just call me God. <laughs> like, and then he'll look. On I think he'll look at them like he's serious and see if they'll do it. You know, <laughs> and if he, if they do do it, then he'll just relentlessly. Um, take the Michael out of them, you know, but also my friend, Paul Bowman went to Hong Kong. Um, we used to do Tai Chi together and now he's just started jujitsu. Finally. Um, he went to Hong Kong and, and seeing Tai Chi, SIFU was the, 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 big word, which was reserved for the very special people. And then he went to Hong Kong and everybody was a SIFU. Like the taxi driver, you'd say, thanks SIFU. No. The, the guy who cooked your food, you say, thank you SIFU. It just meant somebody who was good at something. Mm. Um, but everybody was a sifu, and he was just so he came back, and then he he would like um, he would always just call me sifu after that because <laughs> everyone was a sifu.
1: <laughs> well, you know what they don't do in Hong Kong? They don't have business cards saying like a taxi driver doesn't have a business card saying sifu. I don't know jai. They or they don't or martial mm-hmm. they, like that's a term you use. It's not a term you give yourself. So you know, when in North America we have people, yes, my name is sensei. John Smith, like <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. you don't, you don't give yourself that title, <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> and yeah, and also don't 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 call yourself it on discussion forums and things. It's yeah. it, it it just doesn't it doesn't look good. But saying that, my 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 Chinese uh, my teacher of Chinese arts, I, I always call him Sifu because mm. s- some people do deserve yeah. do deserve it. Which I mean, it's just that we have a very personal relationship between the two of us, um, and. To me, he he sort of is. I, I call him. It'd be rude for me to yeah. call him something different. I mean,
1: yeah. I think my my thinking on this has evolved over time because the because of the abuse that I've seen in martial arts, and I think that mm. abuse has been enabled by. I'm not saying that your teacher or any spe- specific teacher who uses the term uses some kind of term of adornment uh, is a, is a bad person, but I have seen it used to To do bad things, so I think we'd be better off if, if you know, if on the whole we used the first name basis and realize that it's and this is asking a lot and it's asking for a big cultural change. But if I, you know, back in the day when uh, when I had teachers with whom I was on a first name basis for, I had no less respect for them when I called Philip Jelina Who's a really high-ranking Kaiju Campbell guy? Hey, Phil, could you? I don't understand this. Or Philip, could you help me with this, please? The respect is in the phrasing. The respect mm. is in the recognizing that he knows more about something than you do. The respect isn't in the magic, you know, two or three syllable professor, sifu, sensei, two or three syllable uh, word that you use before their name. That that that's. This is. My opinion, and I don't think it's a very popular one, but
0: well, I think
1: in the last in the last two years I've gotten a lot of experience not having popular <laughs> no, opinions, not,
0: not being popular. No, I think logically everything you're saying is correct. Uh, I, I I can I can completely logically agree with you. At the same time, I also my my you know the, my heart mind, as mm-hmm. as you'd say in Chinese, your shin. You're maybe you're a more emotional um, mind or i also see the value of of things like the respect and the and the bowing and all all the all the sort of more traditional parts of the uh, japanese parts of the brazilian jiu jitsu culture that survive um mm. they, they, i i do wonder if we get rid of them all whether we're going to miss them yeah. because they did something that we couldn't perhaps see until it wasn't there yeah.
1: i don't know it's a, it's a valid question, and I think it speaks to different reasons for doing martial arts. I have friends who are practicing Tenjin shin Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. And they're still pretending that they're drawing swords. They're still pretending that they're defending against a top-knot grab. Uh, they're, they're, they're practicing things that aren't very practical on a day-to-day basis, because not very mm. many times when I'm bowing, do I have a katana at my side and I need to figure out how to draw that and cut your head off before you realize that this is an ambush. So they're practicing it to preserve a cultural, sort of a slice of culture or a slice of mm. history.
0: Yeah, and to connect and, to it.
1: Yeah, and I, I can respect that. But at the same time, they're also not saying this is the most deadly system of training ever developed. Because if they were just training for effectiveness, they wouldn't be doing that bowing. They wouldn't be doing that elaborate... It would look a lot more like a weird mix of kendo and Dog Brothers fighting, right where they're uh yeah and and so i I think there's i don't I don't know what the right answer is to your question. I think it's a valid question. I think part of the answer is recognizing that there's martial arts that you train for sort of cultural continuity or respect of history. And then there's stuff that you train, sort of for effectiveness. Can you do both at the same time? Yeah, I think the more you do of one, the less you do of the other. It, uh, it's a little <laughs> bit of a trade. It's a little bit of a trade-off. If we have this elaborate long ritual of uh, either we we figure out how to effectively ambush somebody during a tea ceremony using I don't know the uh, the tea ceremony attack series one to ten, or we get good at defending ourselves on the streets where we're not usually going to have swords and we're not usually going to have a tea ceremony.
0: Mm, I kind of think that if all I was interested in was effectiveness and efficiency, I'd be in the army yeah. or the special forces, and I'm I'm yeah. not. So, So therefore, I am not only interested in the yeah. most efficient way to... Well, there's a middle ground there too.
1: Way. There's like, I'd like something that is efficient and works, but I'm only willing to spend six hours a week on it. I mean, if you're in the <laughs> army, they they could fill your uh, 156 hours a week with a lot of stuff, and and even there, right? I, I I've never been in the army, but I've been in the fire department. Uh, back in the day, fire department used to have drill, and they used to like line up. You know, before our crew shift could go home, we all had to be in uniform with our cap and our tie. The other crew would come on. We'd basically stand facing each other. Everyone's here. Everyone's here. Okay. And there were probably all these reasons why this is going to make a much more effective and efficient fire department. And yes, this just gets the day off to a good start and blah, blah, blah. Much more casual now. People just wander mm-hmm. in like, hey, is, is Joe here? Because I'm Joe's replacement. Yeah, Joe's uh, upstairs working out. Hey, Joe, I'm going to take over now. Okay, cool. And we, you know, we get dressed a little bit more slowly and we're not in a cap and tie. And I would argue that, you know, tactically and technique-wise, like what we're actually doing on the fire ground, what we're actually doing in emergencies, is better now. Mm. So this... People always try to justify their their traditions. Yes, it's really important to march in a square, to be, to be able to march, and to like you know do Honor Guard-type stuff, and the, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's our long, convoluted reason for why this makes a better soldier. How much time does the SAS or the Navy SEALs or Delta Force spend marching i'm going to say very little right because mm. they they've mm. found more effective ways but 100 years ago as they're getting ready to march off to you know the flanders in world war one I, I guess it's more than 100 years ago 110 years ago <laughs> as they're getting yeah. ready to fight world war one uh you would have had regimental sergeant majors who would be willing to die on the hill that you must have good drill. It is impossible to have a good soldier if they do not march properly. And you know, and that's just—I don't think that's historically true. Yeah, but a lot, a, a lot changed after the war, didn't it? Yeah,
0: a, a lot of that thinking went. I think that, like you know, wars are great moments of change in civilization and uh, great moments of innovation, and a lot of that army training. Changed dramatically after mm. World War One, and then dramatically after World War Two, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah I, I mean, if you look at, it's, I'm not the first person to point it out, but if you take a look at French soldiers at the beginning of World War One, 1914, they've got breastplates, they've got plumes, they've got red pants, they they, and it, mm. you know three years later, aside for like out of date rifles, they basically look like soldiers now. I mean, they're, they're mm. green, grey, much more practical, pouches all over the place. Gone are the breastplates. Gone are the helmet plumes. It, uh, And I guess when you're throwing a losing 10,000 lives a month, you, you figure out what works and what doesn't work.
0: Yeah, you, you, your priorities change very quickly yeah. and very dramatically, don't they? And it takes an event like that to... You know, it's 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 back to the whole sort of sparring, isn't it? Like it, it, direct contact with reality.
1: You you know what else has changed? In in your in my lifetime, you're fifty. I'm fifty two. Yeah. Uh, back when we went to school, uh, we were just on the very cutting edge of it being okay to kick in a fight, right? Like I remember yeah. just like yeah. grade one, two, three. Oh, he's kicking. He's a girl. That's it's dirty. It feels dirty. It's King King dirty. Is dirty. Yeah. yeah. And then along came Bruce Lee, and all of a sudden there was nothing yeah. cooler yeah. than you could do <laughs> yeah. than knock some guy out with a sidekick. <laughs> nothing cooler. Yeah. And then we went through a phase where like, okay, they were fighting and then they ended up like rolling around on the ground and like eh. I mean a lot of fights did end on the ground. A lot of fights mm-hmm. did end in what we would now call mount or a headlock with you know a bunch of punches to the face. But it wasn't really considered to be real fighting, and certainly, like choking somebody, would have been totally outlandish.
0: It's not very manly, is it?
1: <laughs> now, not now, not now. I mean, I've said this before, but I was driving in downtown Vancouver and was watching two homeless people fight, and one of them basically tried like doing a pulling a, a guillotine from the feet, jumping back into guard and trying to choke the guy out by by essentially doing a sacrificing guillotine. Now, mm. you know, it, it I don't know if that guy ever trained. I doubt it. But I think just that awareness has drifted down into the ethos that, mm. uh, that that is something that you can do. Certainly. And then there's regional variations too. I mean, if you get in a confrontation with somebody in Texas where it's unusual if they only have one gun in the car, probably <laughs> every guy in the in the vehicles packing and they've got a spare shotgun under the seat or whatever. Like that's, mm. that's not unusual in the American South. It's a very different situation from getting into a, a fight in a British nightclub where I'm sure that, uh, knives are an issue. Yeah. But kni- pro- knives are an issue. Yeah. But the idea of getting shot is still fairly unusual. It's
0: extremely unusual. You, the, yeah. the idea of getting shot in Britain is you know it's not even on your radar no yeah. knives however oh yeah. constant problem yeah everyone's worried about a knife um yeah. but yeah i mean also the i was reading about um the amount of guns in the south america and then the, it goes sort of hand in hand with this honor culture which is that there don't tend to be fights but then when there are everyone gets shot and dies so, because the consequences are so much more serious that they don't tend to, and and, and, and a bit like what do you a mean the legal like the consequences? Samurai. No, I was thinking about more like the samurai culture in mm. Japan was that you didn't have small little fights over nothing. Mm. You either had big fights where you both drew your sword and somebody died, or or you just it, it took a lot to get to the level where a mm. confrontation was going to happen, and when it did, it was. All out, um, yeah. and I think everyone, if everyone's got a gun, it, it's the same kind of thing. I think. Um,
1: yeah, if that was true, then there would be less homicide and less shootings in the American South. And I think it's pretty clear that there isn't. Like that, it basically
0: the less, f- f- um, not not shootings. I mean, um, uh, physical punching and kicking and fighting. I don't know. Uh, we'd have to look at the stats on that.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, uh, or I'll ask you this. When, if you go out tonight, I don't know, go out for dinner, go shopping or whatever, are you going to be packing a gun? No. What are your odds of actually shooting somebody today? Pretty much zero. Pretty much, pretty much zero. In, in Britain, right. Yeah. Now, if, if you carried a gun with you everywhere that you went, what are the odds that you're shooting somebody? They, they've gone up. Like, they've gone up yeah, significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And... I know I don't, I mean, I pissed off everybody in the American South already. So the odds (laughs) of your kid finding that gun and accidentally killing himself or their playmate go through the roof. I mean, I know just about everybody who has a gun has got a a story like, oh my God, the kids found the gun and then they, I don't know, they shot the bed by accident. And the odds of you killing yourself go up through the roof as well because it's so easy and convenient. I'm actually not against suicide. Like, if, you, if you've got a terminal disease, if you've got, I don't know, ALS, and your body's going downhill, I totally support your right to self-euthanize. But I think, you know, if you've, your house is full of guns, and you have a bad day at the office, and then you go get drunk, you know, like, there, there's a, there's a, I don't think it should be a snap decision based on a temporary condition of depression, or a temporary right. condition of uh intoxication
0: i think canada is much more similar to the uk because you no. i'm imagining you don't all have guns uh
1: there's a fair amount of long guns like rifles in the countryside right, right yeah. uh especially in the north i mean you, you there are a lot of hunters there are a lot of you know uh i have guns i'm not anti-guns I, all right. I,
0: I, I, I i i i kind of am <laughs> I, I I wasn't making a case for guns before. I was making a case against them, to be honest. Um,
1: Uh, Well, I'm anti-handguns. I'm anti-automatic weapons. I'm anti-weapons that can easily be modified into... Like, there aren't very many shooting rampages with hunting rifles, right? If if you were going to go on a shooting rampage tomorrow and you had your choice, you'd get a bunch of automatic weapons and you'd, like, now strap a couple of handguns onto you. If I wasn't going up north regularly into... Black bear country, grizzly bear country, and polar bear country. I probably wouldn't have a gun, but yeah. I think not. Not not many bears in uh, Britain. Not anymore. <laughs> it's too bad. No, we've, they're all dead. <laughs> when when were they extirpated? I, I imagine that probably when humans arrived, they were gone shortly thereafter. Yeah, was,
0: but yeah, basically, there is there is no there is no gun gun culture in the United no. Kingdom
1: really. It's so,
0: so we 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 look on the whole thing as incredibly strange. Um,
1: it is, and when you could travel to other countries, like I mean, Australia had a couple of mass shootings, and they basically decided to get rid of mass shootings. There there's been a whole lot of commentary on how the United. Basically, we're talking about gun culture. We're talking about the United States, and then we're talking about places like Syria or Afghanistan. Like it's the only other place in the world where you see like twelve guys posing with their Kalashnikovs, and we're like, look at those savages. And then there's like some family at you know Thanksgiving dinner, and they everybody's got a gun. They're like, oh, look <laughs> at that freedom in action! <laughs> yeah. That's it, uh, what freedom yeah. looks like. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, how's this? As, would this solve your concerns about guns? Make getting a license to get your gun about as difficult as getting a pilot, somewhere between getting your 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 driver's license and your uh, your pilot license
0: it should be way harder than that
1: Pilot uh, license uh, pretty uh, hard
0: I, I don't i don't know how easy it All is right. to get a pilot's license um but getting a driver's license is, is really easy <laughs> yeah.
1: but it's not something you can do spur of the moment i mean this this last freaking shooting in the states it's probably not the last it's probably been several shootings since then 15 year old kid given a handgun for christmas uh yeah yeah like that is insane that is completely uh, I don't know how p g this podcast is. You can always bleep this out. It's completely fucking crazy, like I mean you're gonna take uh, allow somebody in their throes of hormonalness right like what's more hormonal than a than a teenager sort of between age I don't know, I'm not an expert in this' we'll go fourteen to eighteen pretty volatile,
0: yeah, uh, and he was drawing cartoons of of people being shot and murdered yeah. and yeah writing out help me in text yep. it's yeah. you know it's like
1: I mean it's madness
0: madness and you know you get into the arguments with people and the, their answer is more guns we, yeah. we solve this by arming the teachers it's like oh what <laughs> well
1: Sasha Baron Cohen had that wonderful kindergarten sketch uh, where uh, he was talking about the only way to stop school shootings is by arming specially trained uh, preschoolers <laughs> <laughs> Kindergartens.
0: <laughs> Kindergartens. And they, yeah, I imagine he managed to get loads of people to th- decide it was a really good idea as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, he then did the tour yeah, of the various yeah.
1: politicians, <laughs> and yeah. uh, had some, you know, had some people who were basically terrified of pissing off the NRA to uh, to sign on to this idea. Uh,
0: yeah. Sorry, we've, I've just broken my chain of thought there. So um, we, we drifted off into guns, which hmm. is something I don't think we get into. But there we go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just strange for me to find myself on the more pro-gun side of an argument because I'm usually the person arguing for restraint. I'm just a person yeah. arguing for uh, I don't know that with proper licensing that uh, you know that having a hunting rifle and the, being a hunter or having a, a shotgun for bear protection is actually a reasonable uh, it's actually a reasonable thing. So it's it's interesting no, to no, run I- into somebody who's on the other. And, run into the other side of that
0: I, I completely think it's reasonable if you're going to go and hike in the wilderness with bears around you, yes you need a gun yes I mean that's totally totally reasonable yeah. well, I, um, but what, why need, why need a semi-automatic weapon I don't know yeah, <laughs> <It's> the... <no.
1: laughs> yeah a military assault rifle to keep me safe from bears
0: yeah it's, and you see these just pictures of people with their semi-automatic weapon uh, that they've got at home that they they, they keep in a drawer somewhere unsecured that their teenage sons got access to, yeah. and it's just oh my
1: goodness. It's a it's a nationwide fetish, or I wouldn't say nationwide fetish. It's a fetish of a large segment of the population south of the border south of my border. Yeah. And uh, it it it's been conflated with freedom. It's been conflated. I mean, you know, with the right to overthrow uh, a tyrannical government. Really. Your AK-47 is going to take out that drone. Your house is just going to <coughs> evaporate. If you're really fighting the government, your house is just going to evaporate one night as the drone drops. Like, So clearly the answer is that everybody should be allowed their own drone. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's it. That's that's my my experience of trying to argue with people who are incredibly pro-guns. The answer is always more guns. So no matter what the question was, the answer is school shooting. Well, the answer is more guns.
1: Um, Well, it's like climate change, right? We're going to deny that there's this thing called climate change. Then we're going to say, yeah, there is climate change, but it's not being caused by humans. Then we're going to say, yeah, there is climate change. It's caused by humans, but it's too late now. There's nothing we can do. So similarly, no, 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 guns are not a problem. Yeah, guns are a problem, but only in the hands of criminals. Yeah, guns are a problem, but it's too late now because there's so many guns in the States that uh, if we stop making them, then the, the good people won't be able to defend themselves. It's like a, no, it's not a problem. No, it's not a problem. Yeah, it's too late.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't I don't, I don't know what the answer is because it would require a massive disarming of the population, wouldn't it? If you were to get rid of guns in America, um, people would have to hand them in.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think there's a mass. There's more than one mass shooting a day in the states. Mass shooting, I think, defined by is it two or three people shot by a single in a single incident. Mm. I guess like something like four to five hundred a year. <clears throat> uh, it doesn't seem like there's any number of school shootings that can change the minds. It doesn't seem like there's any death toll from COVID that can change your mind. It doesn't seem like it's like once the decision has been made that that accepting something like you know there's there's no number of school shootings, there's no death toll from a disease. It's now un-American to pretend that. That these things are solvable, they're not solvable. We're just going to have to tough on through it. Well, it's not true. <clears throat> Many countries have had some degree of these problems and done a much, much better job of solving them. I'll say Canada has had, I think, last time I looked, about a quarter of the per capita COVID death tolls, and I don't think Canada's done a great job, but it's not done an insane job. Right? It hasn't been complete madness and just complete science denial. And like, let's make, let's set us up for the worst possible spread of this freaking illness. Uh, you know, it, it's you, all the restaurants, all the stores require you to wear masks. You see like one guy in a thousand not wearing a mask and you don't see anybody flipping. Out. I've not seen anybody flipping out about uh, vaccination requirements to like go and eat. I'm sure it happens. But it's mm. not, like, it's not a cultural sport to, like, see mm. if I can make some 15-year-old server's life hell by proving to her that she's, you know, that asking for vaccination, proof of vaccination in the middle of a pandemic is exactly how they treated the Jews in <laughs> 1930s Germany. It's exactly the same. In Auschwitz. This is Auschwitz. Lady, yeah. you don't know what the fuck Auschwitz is. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been. Have you?
0: Have you? Um, I don't know if you. You don't really watch much TV. You said, but um, I've been watching Foundation recently, which is the oh. Asimov science fiction yeah. thing, and it's on Apple TV, and it's a, it's a, a sort of a. It spans incredibly long timescales, and it's about this sort of the rise and fall of empires, mm. and this sort of grim inevitability that, that um it, it's all in human history it's, it's impossible not to go through these cycles of mm. of growth and everything's great and then suddenly it declines again um and we forget all our science and have to relearn it all and um civilization collapses and uh i've actually been finding it incredibly comforting <laughs> to, yeah. to, to, to this idea that um you know everything's that's going wrong in the world today you think well maybe it's just this is the way humans are we have to go through these inevitable um, periods where everything gets really bad and then it'll get good again afterwards yeah. um, and that's that 's what I find has, has sustained me through these these incredible periods of um, of science denial and and <sighs> backward look wanting to go backwards all the time to this golden age that never existed that's, yeah. that's the that 's the thing that i I just can 't get my head around
1: the undermining of the educational system. I mean, this idea like, yeah, sure, there's a new variant every day. Well, if you don't have any understanding of biology or history, you're n- you're not going to understand that these things come in waves. I mean, Europe dealt with a Black Death for 200 years, right? Mm. It would come and it would go mm. and it would come and it would go and it would come and it would go. And this is normal. This is, you know, and, uh, you know, RNA viruses mutate. They mutate faster than DNA-based viruses. This is normal. Like, this is basic biology. But the trouble is that basic biology is not basic. I think the educational system has been undermined systematically. Basically, rich people can put their kids in private school. So why would we spend money on, uh, on public school? Mm. And uh, uh, this is me sounding rather leftist, but I, I think... It's, it's under, I don't know what the situation is in the UK, but...
0: It's, a, it's the same situation in any, any wealthy country, inevitably. It, it, as I was saying, it seems to go for this cycle where hmm. as a country gets wealthy, eventually the, the rich become so much more wealthy than the rest of the population hmm. that they, they just separate off and have this sort of two-tier system that there's one sort of, you know, the, the private education... There's certain jobs that they're picked for, and everything, yeah. and they stay in this elite bubble, and then everyone else just kind of ends up in this sort of maelstrom of, <laughs> of, of, of no access to um, opportunity and education, and like it, it. So, Britain and America, I think, are pretty much the same in this respect.
1: No, yeah. I suppose that, I mean. Britain in the last 100 years has seen a decline. I mean you used to, you know, the sun didn't set on the British Empire. Yeah. Down yeah, to t- losing all the terms colonies of empire,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of within the historical memory I imagine of most Britons. Like once upon a time and what was the, the greatest extent of the British Empire? I want to say probably mid 1800s or I guess losing uh losing America in the 1700s so yeah mid the Victorian 1700s times. Sure.
0: The Victorian times I think was the, the the biggest and then after that it declined
1: okay so basically uh, once they started losing the colonies yeah uh, India uh, yeah when, uh,
0: when we, we, we got out of India then uh, various parts of Africa we, we, we were like you know forced out of or, or left
1: yeah and India was such a giant source of wealth massive yes yeah. yes yeah it's so, a huge resource i think we're seeing the decline of the like, the decline of the american empire right now it's 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 just it's hard to see it in real time and it's ugly and it's uh, you know it's it's not a piece of science I'm not everyone going you know what we should downscale everyone is everyone in consensus about downscaling okay <laughs> we're, we're but but you take a look at the education system in the states i've spent time in arkansas I will say that an Arkansas grade 12 is roughly the equivalent of a Canadian grade nine in terms of basic public education. So now if that's true for a lot of the American South, how are people in the American South going to compete with in a global economy? When you, when I, if I need to hire somebody to work on a website, I'm going to click on I don't know, Upwork.com and I'm going to find somebody and you know what? I'm going to find Ravinder in India, who was, instead of, you know, when I was in grade nine, the same age guys in Arkansas is functionally in grade six. The same guy in India is functionally in grade 11. Right? We take a look at the emphasis on science and math in places like India. It's there. Like, how is that? Going? How's Jim Bob in Crystal Springs, Arkansas going to compete? He's not. He's absolutely. He's going to get blown out of the water in an information age. I mean, yes, it's going to be hard to bring Ravinder in to cook uh, fried chicken at the local roadside stand, or to—I guess you don't pump gas anymore—to to to work at the Amazon warehouse. But uh, in any kind of knowledge sector jobs, it's it's imploding. So. Yeah, I think we're watching the collapse of uh, an empire in real time. The problem is, I mean, how would uh, <laughs> the collapse of the Roman Empire or the collapse of the British Empire have looked if uh, if they'd had nukes? That, that's that's the frightening thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: I, it. I somehow I don't think that um, the uh, who is was it was Alaric? Did Alaric sack Rome? The, whatever, the sack of Rome in the 400s. I might might have looked a little bit know. different if the last Roman emperor had had access to, I don't know, a thousand nukes he could deploy. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but... Um... See, what they needed was guns. Guns would have kept Rome free. <laughs> guns are the answer, you yeah, see. Guns are the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the name of your podcast episode. Guns, guns are the answer gun. by Stephen Casting. Or with yeah, Stephen so. Casting.
0: After talking to Stefan Kesting for an hour and a half, we suddenly realised <laughs> that guns were the answer <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Triangle choke, guns. Yeah.
1: <laughs> John Wick. Gun-fu. Yeah.
0: I, I think we should probably draw things to a close there, uh, Stefan. That's been great yeah. chatting to you.
1: Well, thank you. I, I'm glad you were so indulgent. Of I think we started on a tangent and then ended on a tangent and interspersed that with a whole bunch of tangents and got a little bit of talking in about jiu-jitsu. So I, I apologise for yeah. being so easily... Uh, let us pray. <laughs>
0: well I just like to let people talk I mean it's it's interesting to me where these things go and uh, like um, yeah I'd rather not have a plan to be honest I've got a couple of things I, would, I like to ask but uh, I just take it where it goes okay thanks so much Graham excellent okay thank you very much Stefan thank you for joining us you can find out more about the Tai Chi Notebook podcast at www.thetaichinotebook.com. You can support us by giving our podcast a positive review on iTunes and our page alike on Facebook. Just search for the Tai Chi Notebook to find us. Until next time, enjoy your training.